Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin. This is a comics podcast, usually. Uh, but like everyone else, we're watching Game of Thrones, and I wanted to have two of the biggest A Song of Ice and Fire experts around to talk about it with us, each from a really unique perspective. I'm really excited and honored to be able to bring these two voices to the show, because when I was thinking about, like, who do I want to have a Game of Thrones podcast with that isn't on a Game of Thrones podcast now... These are the two games that came to mind immediately. So you are all in for a treat. Uh, joining me is frequent guest of the show. Stephen Adewell is the founder of Race for the Iron Throne, which covers a song of ice and fire chapter by chapter from a historical and political angle. In addition to two published collections of the chapter by chapter essays, Stephen is also author of King's Hands and City States, a collection of essays focusing specifically on the political structures of George R.R. R. Martin's world. He is on Twitter at Stephen Adewell, uh, S-T-E-V-E-N-A-T-T-E-W-E-L-L, and Tumblr as Race for the Iron Throne, where I see people asking him a billion questions at all times. Hello, Stephen. Hello, good to be here. And joining me for the first time is Ruben Tihi Hazlitt. Uh, Tihi is a queer activist, writer, and storyteller. He currently works at Demand Progress, leading online campaigns against the overreach of government surveillance. Tihi's debut book, Dark Corners, is a short story collection of speculative fiction that centers the voices of queer people of color. You can find Dark Corners wherever you buy books online or in person. As a fluent speaker of Dothraki, one of the languages created for HBO's Game of Thrones, Tihi recently worked on the upcoming Netflix series Daybreak as a Dothraki language consultant. Tihi has an MFA in creative writing from Fayetteville University and currently lives in Long Beach, California. Hello. Hey, hi everyone. I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. Very well done. <laughs> I just like love that you were like, I am going to learn Dothraki. And then you did that. <laughs> it's really been like the life-changing kind of hobby. I had no idea what I was getting into when I got started with it. Um, and now I'm like in this crazy place of like developing like Dothraki divination and astrology systems and whatnot. And, you know, might be having my own book out about that soon. I have to find Ooh. out. That's Ooh. great. If folks want to get more involved in the Dothraki speaking language community or the Dothraki learning language community, like where would they do that? A really great place to go is Discord. If you have the Discord app, like if you're a gamer, uh, we have a our own server. It's invite only. It's Rahashi Dothraki, Dothraki country. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Rahash Dothraki, which is uh, the main Twitter page for our Dothraki community. That's awesome. Can you spell that real quick? That's spelled R-H-A-E-S-H. Dothraki, D-O-T-H-R-A-K-I. Again, R-H-A-E-S-H. Dothraki. <laughs> so as you can see, listeners, we are, we are coming to this from a very nerdy place. Um, I don't know if I've spoken about my uh, associations with the show or the books on the podcast before. I would say that um, I was someone who got sucked into reading the books right before the series began. Um, I just read them all in a giant binge of reading. And then as soon as the new one came out, I read it and I read the prequels. I consider myself to be very versed in the world of Song as I Have Ice and Fire, but I'm not like the expert, expert, expert. Um, but I, uh, I really love the books, and I enjoy the show. 
I, that's how I would that's how I would describe my fandom with it. Um, and I, I haven't really done a Game of Thrones coverage before because this is you know basically a comics podcast. But this was just too good of an opportunity to to not do. And um, last night we all got to watch the premiere of the final season of the show. I um, have had a range of feelings around the show, you know, in different seasons at different points. I, at this point, um, you know, I was happy with the way the last season ended, despite there have been, been plenty of things I had issues with before that in the season. Uh, but I remained, you know, pretty hopeful and excited to see what would happen. I am one of those folks who feel like I thought that the show was consistently better before it outpaced the material it was based on. Uh, I don't blame them for having to do this. They, they had no choice. But um, but I, I do really believe that the literary and artistic vision of George R.R. R. Martin is brilliant and uh, complex and sensitive in a way that it's hard to sometimes transfer onto television. But, um, but yeah, I still enjoy I the show. I'm still happy to be here. I agree. I just started reading the books now, but I feel like as somebody who watched the show without reading any of the books, you can kind of tell when the show started to outpace George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's that's interesting to me to hear as well. I've heard that from a lot of folks who were who were show first folks. Um, and you know, one of the things that I really hope that folks get from this season, um, a friend of mine is actually going to be launching a campaign around a Song of Ice and around Game of Thrones, connecting it to the elections in in um, the EU, the EU parliamentary elections. And I was just voicing to him that I thought it was kind of cool that they were going to be starting their campaign near the end of the uh, series. Because I hope by then people will be more aware of the fact that this is a show that's not just about twists and turns and psyching people out. It's about like serious subject matter like climate change and abuse and like regime change and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So hopefully by the end, that will be an undeniable thing that everyone watching it will have realized. Um, And that that could be maybe useful for his campaign. But we shall see. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, You know, sometimes, um, especially in in more recent years as well, I've felt that, you know, the show has really kind of um, uncritically accepted the Lannister assertion that, you know, in the Game of Thrones, there's you win or you die, and the only thing that matters are the ends, not the means. Whereas, you know, I, I highly encourage anyone who's a fan of the show to to read the books where I think there's a very interesting um, critique and interrogation of that kind of consequentialist philosophy, as well as sort of um, uh, a critique of sort of your standard fantasy um, series in which, you know, good people prevail because they are good people. Yeah. And I would also just say as a comics reader, like I have never read anything as propulsive or addictive as these books. That's good to hear because I'm somewhat struggling with the first book, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm also approaching it as like a Dothraki speaker where like if the Dothraki art in the scenes, I don't really care because I've <laughs> seen it all, um, which is just my own failings. I think one of the things that the show has is this underlying assumption around like power and who deserves to be to have power. Like I'm really yeah. interested in how the final season is going to wrap this up with Daenerys's claim to the throne, Jon's claim to the throne, and it, it's kind of like it's it's the underlying assumption there that there is always a claim to the throne that that someone some minority always has claim to power in some way. 
And like all the various different cultures in the Song of Ice and Fire have these sort of like power hierarchies. And I'm wondering like how it's gonna how we're how we're gonna leave all of this. Are we gonna get a revolution or are we gonna get like a mini like half step revolution that happened in Slaver's Bay when um, Daenerys sort of like led the revolt, but not very many things have changed, and that we also haven't mm-hmm. gone back and seen since she left, like, it's kind of an afterthought. Yeah. So it's like, ah, I felt really weird about that during those seasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was going to say, like, the the thing that I've sometimes been uh, worried about is that there is something of an attitude that in order to be good, you have to be stupid, and in order to be smart, you have to be a little bit evil. You know, you mm-hmm. sort of saw this a little bit like last season where, like, Jon Snow goes out of his way to be, like, ridiculously truthful um, you know, even when that's going to do a huge amount of damage to his own side and, you know, vice versa. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like a little bit of the conflict with him and Sansa is this idea that like, you know, if you're, if you're smart and politically minded, then that means that you're also, you know, manipulative and, you know, that, that, um, I, I was reading one recap where they sort of we're talking about this idea that like the only people that you can trust with power are the ones who don't want it, which, you know, is an attitude that I'm a little uncomfortable about. Um, because yeah. you know, in some ways, like I do believe that like being a politician is, uh, a profession and a skilled profession. And it's one that like, yeah, you kind of want people to want to be good at and, and succeed at, and often reluctant rulers can be rightfully <laughs> reluctant because they're not very good at it. And I mean, I feel like we saw that with uh, the High Sparrow thing, too. He, like, protests so much that he was, you know, just a commoner and he didn't want any of this power. And then, you know, took over and tried to install this theocracy. I think that, like, I think that we in the Western world have this sense that any kind of political intelligence any kind of understanding of power and resources and dynamics are inherently evil and i say that as somebody who's worked as a political operative a lot of times like wondering if i'm evil for just for being savvy and seeing like oh here's an opening where we could you know run a campaign that could have like a big effect like wow does that make me conniving like i don't know i worry about this no people treat us that way i remember one time i was on jury duty and they were they went and they asked us like what our, what our careers were and when they came to me they were like are you okay with us telling the others what you do for a living and i was wow. like good god i don't like kidnap children or like i'm not like a drug dealer like what even i, I was like yes please tell them and then i can help them figure out where their polling place is like fuck you <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's a real dynamic and I'm glad you're all pointing to it. I'm also impressed. We've gotten to be like how many minutes, like 10 into our episode and we've had no spoilers. So I do want to say to our folks, um, if you were someone who was questioning if watching the new season is even worth doing it, like, yes, of course, finish the damn thing. Good God. The only person who I know who's actually like dropped out and said, nope, goodbye was, uh, my spouse after the battle of the bastards decided to nope out of watching the rest of the series. But, um, uh, but other than other than him, everybody else, like, come on, we're going to watch this. And from here on out, here be spoilers of the first episode of season eight. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Which, by the way, turns out actually does have an episode title. Do I tell. was trying like hell. It's Winterfell. It's very simple. But like, oh. I was trying like hell ahead of the, the show to like, okay, what do I call this episode when I write the post? 
Interesting. Uh, yes, they actually have episode titles. Because on okay. on HBO now, when it like it just popped up, like and it had the episode title. But I've seen people online being like, "Oh, what is this episode called?" And I'm like, "Winterfell." Like, but yep. not everybody is using, I guess, my streaming things, which is not a plug. All telecom companies are evil. Um. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism exactly. so let's talk about the new credit sequence which oh, i was lovely. so excited it was beautiful to get like really taken inside of the buildings for the first time yeah and what what i especially liked about it was that like you know it, it paid homage to the style that we've come to you know, expect from the show, but then did very different things. Like, for me, seeing the wall and then it being cracked and seeing that, like, blue ice tile spreading really, you know, made the White Walkers feel very real. Um, But also, it... I think it did a great job at, like, bringing various... You know, really centering Winterfell and, like, bringing the locations within Winterfell, like the crypts, and that's an important location, or the, you know, the heart tree, and that's an important location. Um, really to the fore in a way that sort of, you know, a, a simple rotating cog doesn't always quite do. Yeah, I um, was a little disappointed with it, um, partially because, like, I understand why they're doing it and showing all of this and the crypts and the throne room and everything, which were, they were exciting, but... Because the show's coming to a close, there's less places they're going. Yeah. And so there's more time to show more of that. And that was the first time, even in the opening credits, the first time it hits me that, like, this phenomenon is going to end because all these stories are converging in the north. And I'm like, oh, I'm never going to see Vias Dothrak on this map ever again, most likely. Yeah. And that makes me sad. Um, in places like Bravos, which I always thought were super interesting, or Dorne, which I feel like is the best place to be in Westeros, but, yes. like, yeah. No, that's all very true. I mean, we're at a point where people with specific kinds of priorities in what they love about the show or series will have less for them, depending on what it is that they're looking for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the really another things that I thought was really impressed with the beginning of the series was how much the opening sequence mirrored the first sequences from the uh, from season one with um, the royal family arriving at Winterfell mm-hmm. when everyone was young and naive. <laughs> um, and this episode, instead of having Bran running along trying to uh, find a good angle and Arya running around, we have the new little boy who we later find out is probably the smallest of small John Umbers. Um, hmm. I w- I feel so terrible for the Umbers. They were like, I really liked them in the books. Um, anyway, uh, uh, he's like, you know, little boy running, trying to get a good angle on the procession as it arrives. And, you know, Arya getting out of the way for him to have a better view. It's just a complete re-throwback to that first sequence, but showing her, you know, as a more adult character now and with a new generation of little kid running mm-hmm. behind. Yeah. It was really cute. It's also, it, it's, I feel like you could see in that scene, like, so much trauma that Arya has gone through. Like, through yeah. so many seasons where, like, Arya's a fighter, you know, and, like, Arya... But she really kind of slips into the dark side for a while. And I feel like late last season and all throughout this episode, you kind of see her somewhat wrestle with that. So, like, when she sees Jon Snow and she's really happy to see him, but then there's Daenerys there, and then the Hound comes, but then Gendry's there. And it's like, as much as she wants to be 
hardened into this well-trained assassin she is still kind of a teenager and she still has these like emotional sorts of reactions which i thought were like excellently played by the actor mm-hmm. she did an amazing job all the whole cast is very talented uh oh, but yeah. it was one of the things i really enjoyed uh, and you know following up on that idea of the of the mirroring um you know one of the things that i like the the positive thing in this in this first episode i feel overwhelmingly is that like these reunions that fans have been waiting for for years and years and years you know in some cases like literally like season 1 you know episode 1 to now Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the very end of the episode, um, you know, are finally happening. And that's great, and I, I really like that. And we get to see all these sort of new character combinations that we haven't seen in the past. Um, the the downside to that, the, the price that you pay for that a little bit, is that, like, you lost a little bit of the uh, narrative propulsion. Like, not a whole lot happened. You know, the the thing that was sort of crazy to me is this episode represented like 16 percent of the whole season right mm-hmm. so they don't have a lot of uh narrative room to run but they still devoted um you know 16 percent to like this you know in some ways like it reminds me of of premiere episodes of previous seasons which were always a little bit slow and then everything would pick up um, as you got, you know, more towards, like, episode three or four. Yeah, I was, like, I was telling friends earlier um, today about this when we were, like, debriefing the show that, like, we need these reunions, we need to see how people's tensions butt up against each other because a lot of people are actually fighting on the same side, which is the side of life and humans and fighting against the army of the dead. But just because they're on the same side doesn't mean that they agree about everything or that they can't have beef with each other. And, like, that will make the future battle much more narratively rich uh, once we see and can kind of understand that there are so many different dynamics at play here and different shifting kind of feelings of loyalty and guilt. Like, I'm thinking about, like, Tyrion and Sansa and, you know, like, there's sort of, like, cold forgiveness slash thing that happened in their reunion um and that these things are well it's not a lot of plot happening they're so necessary for where we're gonna go uh that i was like forgiving the show for being a little bit slow although everybody's shade was hella thick the tea was piping hot on like literally every single character (laughs) read everyone for filth in this episode which was great uh and i was i was hooting hollering the whole time so uh the um, one of the things that was different between this procession of kings and queens into Winterfell versus season ones is this time there are black people, and I, I really appreciated Black Twitter's um, responses to like you know the seeing the Northerners uh, looking at Grey Worm and Miss Sandy coming in on the horses like clearly as people in stations of power. Um, within the arrival of the court, so to speak, and just trying to read people's faces and and yeah. see what that is like. I mean, because you have a you have a cosmopolitan country in other parts of the country. King's Landing, you know, you've got a lot more racial diversity, mm-hmm. uh, but in the north, you really haven't seen that. And what I thought was really interesting, so like the root all last season had these amazing, hilarious analysis and breakdowns 
from like a black perspective um, on Game of Thrones, which I enjoyed to read, but also as a black person, I was like, I don't always like see or agree with them. But one of them is this assertion that like the Starks are our like white cousins of us black folk. And I was like, I never quite really like believed that, even though it's a hilarious assertion, but we can see it in the North with just like, it was so to me as a person of color, obvious, like when Masande looks and she looks at, you know, this like, poor family on the side of the road and the way they're staring at her it's like of course the north is racist they're like isolated they're culturally isolated they're really into their own identity and their own sort of isolated uh histories and traditions and that's to me kind of like the one of the tent poles of conservatism is like we are separate we are different we have this tradition that is distinct and superior from other people's um, that I was like, yeah, it was like a reminder that like, you know, the white folks in Westeros are not going to save us and they're, they're not really loyal. <laughs> um, that after we get rid of the Night King, there's still going to be a lot, a lot of things to deal with, especially like from a Dothraki perspective. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things there where the, like the camera work was raised a thought to me, which is like, okay, this like army that is like visually invading the scene you know, that is sort of shown as, like, this incredibly monolithic, you know, efficient clockwork thing, is an army of people of color marching into the north. And that, like, colors some of the, like, conflict later on about, like, you know, what, you know between the sort of, quote-unquote, northern loyalists and the sort of Danny's contingent. Um... But you know, I think, and it's interesting. We did we didn't really see like much in the way of um, Dothraki, unless I missed it. We weren't we weren't very present this episode, um, and then like we kind of haven't been since Daenerys like burned down the Dosh Kaleen with all the calls in there and just sort of took over all the Dothraki people. We've kind of been. We, I'm not a Dothraki person, but Dothraki's have kind of been <laughs> relegated to the side. Uh, which has been really unfortunate because I think, like, of all the cultures that we see in the Song of Ice and Fire, some of the people who have the most vested stake in, like, whatever outcome of who's going to be on the Iron Throne now are actually the Dothraki people. So, like, a whole bunch of them, if not all of them, abandoned their very expansive territory in Essos to come across to Westeros, and crossing the ocean is so taboo. So, like, will they make that second taboo journey back home? And what's going to be left of their home when they get back there? Like, that's going to create this huge power vacuum dynamic that other people are going to encroach in because they had to kill everybody who lived there just to have that as their territory. So hopefully some Dothraki stayed behind, but if so, they're in a weaker position. And if the Dothraki decide not to go back, what's going to happen to them? They're like stateless people now because they're not from Westeros. They don't have any of the same sort of, like, cultural um infrastructure to help them survive in westeros like the dothraki people don't understand capitalism or mercantilism they don't have a word for money they don't care about that they just sort of like pillage and take or have like a gift-giving economy they don't necessarily stay in one place unless that place is via dothrak which is now an ocean away so it's like how are the dothraki going to handle westeros and how is how is westeros going to handle the dothraki um, which is like a, my burning question that I'm asking mm-hmm. myself watching this whole season that I, I hope gets answered, but I'm actually like very worried about the, <laughs> the state of Dothraki people. I, I think it's a huge question and that I, I agree that there's a good chance that they won't actually give it a satisfying resolution. 
I mean, we saw her talking to a couple of um, of Dothraki saw, uh, warriors. Like there was like a brief exchange, basically. Yep. yep. And there was, as a Dothraki speaker, I was just talking to David J. Peterson about this earlier today. But like a little bit of an error in the captioning. So Daenerys is asking like, how many, how much things have the dragons eaten? And they report back like, oh, this much and this much. What they're saying actually in Dothraki is actually a lot less food. They say like Akati Dorve Senvaf, which is like twelve goats and three sheep. But the English subtitles said like eleven goats and eighteen sheep. That like in the editing, the editors decided that the original line of dialogue wasn't enough food, so they just like changed the caption as opposed to changing the whole audio and the whole Dothraki. Wow! So they didn't do like ADR or anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Which is interesting. And, like, also because the dragons are eating a lot of food and they don't have a lot of food in the north now, especially now that this army is here. So, like, it kind of ratchets up the tension. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sansa raising the point about, like, supplies. I, I think that how do we keep this army fed in the part of the country that has the least food to start with is a serious concern. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I... Part of me thinks that, like, you know, well, there's an open question about, you know, how long are any of these people going to be around to eat anything? <laughs> you know, uh, it's a real yeah. concern, but, like, yeah. you know, I gotta think that, like, the upcoming casualty rate is going to be pretty damn high. Yeah. Yeah. And things like, like, well, they have some grains and stuff in storage, but, like, are there going to have to then be, like, missions of people who go south of Winterfell to, like, collect more food and grain and ship it back up? Um, which is probably something that, like, elderly people and children could do who are, like, not yet fighting age. Yeah, I mean, and they, they definitely, like, point to and acknowledge, like, Sansa as being, like, a logistics like person who, like, keeps her eye on the logistics yeah. of situations. And sort of honor her for that. I I love this. The Sansatarian reunion was really interesting. I mean, the line, many underestimated you, most of them are dead now. It's just, like, amazing. And yet she and he, like, she doesn't explain to him, oh, by the way, I didn't actually kill your nephew knowingly. I yeah. Like, they, they, they still couldn't actually speak the truth to each other, really. Yeah, it, it was kind of... Um... I, something I noticed about the dialogue in this episode is it seemed very uh, reverse engineered in a lot of places. Mm. That like they came up with the the like the comeback or like the snappy line that would end the conversation, and then felt like to me that they'd then worked their way back to like how does the conversation start? Because I was thinking in that exchange like oh, like this is all set up so that when they find out the truth about Cersei next episode that, like, she gets to, like, snap at Tyrion for, you know... I gotta say, like, for a character whose whole thing is, like, he's intelligent, showrunners have been putting him almost universally in the wrong for about a season and a half now. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you know, this is a problem because if your whole thing about your character is you're intelligent, like... You can you can tell that to the audience, but like unless you start showing it, you create a little bit of dissonance. Yeah, I also I think that like Tyrion's peak level of intelligence and like maneuvering and political understanding really only kind of exists in King's Landing, and that yeah. like once he was taken out, he's like so out of his element 
that is it's almost surprising it's like his reputation is why he's hand of the king but like he doesn't really have like you're right he hasn't had like good advice or, or been a great advisor to daenerys um sort of in his tenure there but he would be sort of necessary in king's landing if slash when she wins um that he's an important person but yeah it's like it's like Tyrion's sort of intellectual power t- are completely confined within a sort of urban, politically rich, and politically complex environment, and that it, if he's not in that, he's not very much use. That definitely makes sense. Like, I hate when so much literature acts asks, acts as if there's only one kind of intelligence to be had. And as a person who's very smart about some things and very dumb about others, I, uh, I've always resented that. And it's also just literally not true. So the idea that Tyrion, <laughs> in certain social contexts in which he is bringing a lot of world knowledge to bear, knows what's up and outside of them is beyond, is accurate as hell and better writing than a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I just don't, I don't, I agree with uh, Stephen that I don't think that the showrunners are actually saying that. Like, I think that they're... You know, they're trying to pack a lot of story into a small amount of space, and that that's one way of looking at it, but they're not necessarily very obvious about it. Um, hmm. Which is which is also going to be interesting, because I agree with your point that it seemed like a lot of the dialogue was constructed for these wig-snatching, you know, witty comebacks. Um, and now that I think about it, I'm like, oh man, that's almost a little disappointing. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But you're totally right. So... <laughs> They need to up well, their game. One session, one section that was a very well constructed from a, I thought from a directorial standpoint, uh, horror sequence that ended with a quippy line, which is the horror movie sequence we had, uh, like really, like it was a straight up and like a now the episode will become a horror movie, um, <laughs> where we have uh, the like Ed Dolores Ed and his crew of Night's Watchmen, you know, and uh, running into uh, Tormund. Giant Spain and his crew like ah Scooby Doo style we were coming from the other side of the haunted house <laughs> oh good you're just you human I've always had blue eyes but then it dials back and you see actually there's also that poor little boy from the beginning of the episode the smallest of the small smallest of the small jaw numbers I refer to him mm-hmm. dead on a spike fully ice zombied and with like a radiating wheel of limbs of other people coming out of his body. I've been trying to think about the symbolism of that sort of sun pattern and what it means. Because the thing is, normally that kind of design is a sun pattern. Mm-hmm. These are the ice zombies yeah, making so it. So that spiral pattern has shown up in the show before. Yeah. Um, they did it at uh, at the Fist of the First Men yeah. with all the mm-hmm. horses. Yeah. It showed up in the cave with... Uh, John and Daenerys. Mm-hmm. It is notably not the symbol from the pilot, but I think this is one of those things that, like, they came up with later mm-hmm. and is a little bit fancier and more complex than the sort of circle-y thing from yeah. um, the first few minutes of, of episode one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it has a meaning or or will have a meeting i've, I've um, always assumed... i did like the pyrotechnics i thought that was cool yeah i've always assumed that because the children of the forest actually created the night king 
that like oh, a lot yes, of his imagery yeah because yeah, we saw it there too so a lot of his imagery is sort of sacred geometry that probably comes from children of the forest because that's why we have those spirals in the mines over in uh dragonstone um mm, i believe because right. that was like a you know sacred children of the forest area and then also north of the wall with the three-eyed raven um that and i was listening to this podcast that they had like this amazing critique like on the spirituality of the Song of Ice and Fire universe and how it shows up in different ways. Um, but like spirals and concentric circles have been part of like sacred geometry of like various cultures here on earth. But like, it makes sense that like, to me, that's what I see when I saw it is like, that is the Song of Ice and Fire planets sort of like sacred geometry. Like we have like the Fibonacci spiral, but this is their spiral. Um, which I thought was cool. And it was an interesting throwback to earlier seasons because it has been seasons since we've seen the White Walkers do something creepy like that. Like, they were very ominous in the beginning and then they became very adversarial with, like, a war that you're fighting and then they had a dragon by the end of it. And, like, so much of this episode felt like going back to the roots and mirroring episode one of, like, you don't even get to see White Walkers. You see what they leave behind to sort of ratchet up that the tension and the um, the threat that they pose. That's so true. And it's making me think like, you know, we talk about the White Walkers as a metaphor for climate change, you know, how everybody's fighting the game of thrones while the actual, and fighting amongst themselves while the actual climate change is like crisis is marching forward. If the, that's that design to me looks like what we here consider a sun symbol. So is are they are they seeking out and trying to create warmth that they're incapable of generating on their own? Like, is that why they're seeking their expansionism? I mean, um, I I don't know. On the show, in the books, the it's very much the opposite. That yeah, uh, they hate all warmth. That they they are uh, basically like anything with warm blood, not just humans, right? Because they mm-hmm. turn bears into undead, and they turn you know, horses and, mm-hmm. you know, it's anything that's warm, you know, I guess they're okay with lizards. <laughs> uh, I wonder you know, then if it's like a desecration then that they take the sun symbol that might've come from the children of the forest as being like warmth and abundance. And they're like, we're going to shit all over this and turn it yeah. into something dark and evil by putting cold dead body parts on it. Yeah, like Monty Burns, they too have longed to destroy the sun. <laughs> yes, yes, oh my god. Um, well, I don't want to go too far without talking about the fact that this is the episode where it finally gets told to John that R plus L equals J, as the fans used to say. <laughs> I love, and this was something that everybody was pointing out on, on Twitter as well, that like, you know, when... Ned says, you know, I'll tell you about your mother when I see you next. Then, of course, he dies before they can actually see each other again. And then, but John is down in the crypts, you know, connecting with his his father in spirit when Sam goes down to tell him what uh, what his true parentage. Um, I'm sad that John doesn't understand that his dad lying to him when he was younger was like, we're... Sam, where Ned fucked up was not telling John when John came of age, um, but but John definitely should not have known that as a small child, where he could have accidentally babbled it to somebody yeah. and gotten his mm-hmm. ass killed. So well, I don't know. Like, Ned, John Ned sort of fell hit- prey to the the "I'll tell you next time we meet" curse of death. 
Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so, also, I think... Like, that's it's... really how we should have known he was going to die, actually. Is exactly. He's oh, absolutely. Die. You know, and, like, same <sighs> thing with Benjen. It's just, like, universally, if you have something to say, if you want to live, you tell someone right away. Yeah. <laughs> Let uh, nothing like fester. It probably was never safe to tell John as long as Robert Baratheon was alive. But that, like, once Robert Baratheon was dead, finally, uh, because he would have taken out any other sort of claim on his throne. And the Lannisters and all those other people in season one were taking out all of Baratheon's bastard children. So, like, it was... It's been safe since Robert died to tell John, but unfortunately yeah. Ned didn't make it that much longer after Robert died. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's like... It is kind of fucked up that Ned didn't tell his uh, tell John, and John has, like, internalized being a bastard in so many different ways... Uh, that like moved him all throughout this whole time and now for him to learn that it's a lie but it also the thing that i enjoy that really colored this whole thing was sam and his interaction with daenerys that he was like so filled with joy and happiness you know and respect to meet her but then found out that she killed his father and his brother and in that moment of grief is when he's telling john this um yeah I thought was like super interesting. I did not see that coming. Like we all know John is going to find out, but how, like I always suspected Bran would tell him, um, in his very stoner philosophical, you know, three eyed. Yeah. I love how that became a meme. Yeah. (laughs) It's so accurate though. With like, you know, Sam, I mean, the actor John Bradley was such an amazing job. It's like, your abusive dad and not abusive brother are both dead. It's like processing, like, like I I, I hope Sam has the intelligence at least to be like, no, my father really is a piece of shit and abusive, but my brother. But he's on the Umbrella Academy. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. Okay, interesting. But, you know, well, my brother is, you know, we in the book we really, it's different, but like in the you know, show, his brother, there's nothing in particularly like, just, I don't know, it was a good bit of acting and complicate and complicate. And I, and I, I believe that he really brought it to John mm-hmm. in that moment to say, like, now I'm showing you the complexity of the situation and asking you to think about how you would handle it differently. Mm hmm. Yeah, because they they have different leadership styles, Daenerys yeah. and John. Like John is very self sacrificing. Um, I would say politely that Daenerys is more of like a visionary leader. <laughs> um, slightly messianic, one might even say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like as a Dothraki speaker, I'm already like contractually obligated to root for Daenerys, so I'm always just finding rose colored glasses of which to look at her. Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't mean messianic in a bad way. I mean, literally, like, her life is entwined with prophecy. Yeah. She was visited by three wise men in a desert. Like, (laughs) you know, she has seen the future. She has walked into fire and come out not dead. Like, if anything, it's slightly weird that, like, John is so fucking blasé about you died and came back from the dead. This should be profoundly transformative to your entire, like, psyche. Yeah, like it is for um, Benric, right, who's gone through all that, or Beric, right? Beric, yeah. Yeah, and and there's almost a piece of that that I also thought was interesting in this episode. Jon Snow and Arya talking at the Weirwood Tree when she was like, you know, how did you survive? And he said, I didn't, but neither one of them wanted to pick it up. And I think that, like, Arya probably didn't want to carry that conversation because then she has to talk about a lot of the stuff that she did. Like, when he asked yeah, if she ever say. used needle and she's like, once or twice. And we're like, 
you know, we're kind of like, bitch, please. Like, we've seen you murder whole tons of people now um, and yeah. root for you while you're doing it. Um, but there's still this, like, you know, shame that she has. Because it's interesting. She She's becoming and has always been one of my favorite characters. But she's so much more interesting to watch now in these later seasons. Because she wants to be this grown sort of warrior, but she's not quite there yet. Um, I'm hoping she gets there because I'm hoping that she takes out Cersei Lannister because I cannot stand Cersei and I think Arya deserves to be the one to kill her. Uh, but yeah. that might be like a yeah. whole other podcast episode. <laughs> I mean, she's not because of the. I mean, I don't know. I guess she could be the younger the younger sibling who kills her, but I still feel like it's probably going to be, you know, her action. I don't know. Maybe, maybe she's the younger sibling who kills. No, I don't want to like litigate too much over prophecies specific to the book, but yeah. <laughs> we'll see I how mean, it I, goes. I clearly want to, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, but speaking of the books, hey, the gold company, the Golden Company arrives. Yes, that, well, that Harry was Strickland of all the characters who I didn't think would make it into the show, Harry Homeless Strickland is there, and he's just as much a smarmy, useless kid. Although it's funny. The show version of him is so much worse at logistics than the book version. The book version got the elephants. He brought the elephants. He was very careful to bring the elephants. But, I mean, part of me thinks, like, well, they probably just didn't have room in the CGI budget. They were busily reenacting How to Train Your Dragon and, you know, priorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's the most expensive show in the world in history Oh, I don't don't blame them. You don't have a a few more for elephants, but, like, okay... I just think for, it's funny yeah. that, like, you, you could have just not mentioned the elephants at all. But, <laughs> but I, I thought it was a fun exchange, though. I did. Like, her having this particular expectation and him explaining why it wouldn't be really metable, meetable, rather. But it also sort of shows up, like, I I like when he comes and he has a, he has, I don't, I haven't watched it again. He's got a specific accent that is not the same accent as everybody else on the show. So I like the whole, like, yeah, he's from a different culture and mm-hmm. like his 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 forefathers are not right his forefathers are west are, are from westeros but he himself is from essos and so i sort of appreciated that like that touch of like the different sort of cultural moment of him coming in mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like they've done that because like who is it back in season one illyrio who teaches Arya the water dancing sword fighting movement he also has his own kind of like distinct accent mm-hmm. and they you know shay also has her own i really like the way that the show has done accents um in terms of marking people who are from further further away distances because like and even the dornish don't quite speak the same as the rest of the westerosi yes which is something they do better in uh the books by the way uh, sorry, better than in the books, by the way, because mm-hmm. Martin doesn't really go in for um, like phonetic uh, transcription of people's di- uh, dialect. Yeah, I know. As a linguistics nerd, I'm pretty sad about it. <laughs> yes. it well, this is, so- this is what happens when, you know, people write fantasy books who aren't Oxford linguistics dons. I was <laughs> going to say, this is also, look, the other, the other option is he could have gone full on Chris Claremont with it, which like, I just don't need that much. <laughs> poorly faith in Bagora. yeah I, yeah no um so that's the thing that was exciting for me but of course the most exciting thing of all it's not cersei's poor decisions it's riding a dragon because here we got to see john 
riding a dragon. I, you know, the fact, like, we knew that this would be possible, that he would be one of the dragon riders, but um, he did take to it quite fast. And I, you know, in the books, the, the dragons have saddles. And in this, like, saddle-free TV show environment, I'm like, not, this, this does not work. This does not work. <laughs> yeah, this well, is not it's, possible. You have nothing to, a little to hold bit on to. dangerous on the set. Kit Harrington was talking about yes. that. He almost <laughs> lost a testicle <laughs> when they were shooting that scene. Yeah, he should probably wear a cup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little late now because the show's in the can. But um Well, he'll learn for future appearances and action shows. That's right. Can. It'll be yeah. in his writer. He's like, you know, <laughs> look, you need to make sure that this is safety proofed. So what did you all think of that sequence? The riding the dragon and the making out? I loved it. It was a little bit long though, but it was to me it's necessary for John's character for him to accept the truth later. Um, that he mm. actually is a Targaryen. Like that would be harder for him if he hadn't ridden a dragon. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was uh, very visually lovely. I mean, the the parallel to Ygritte was very clear. Yes, like they're uh, really trying to make it like obvious. Like this is the relationship. Come on. <laughs> um, I did think it was interesting. Speaking of the, you know, going back a little bit to the R plus L equals J thing, that like he seems, and and this has to do with the way that the show has handled incest really strangely in the past couple seasons. Um, like, he seems way more worried about the fact that, like, he's technically, you know, the the Targaryen male heir than he is about the fact that, like, she's his aunt. I don't think that that... I, I think that's legitimate. For the record, I think within the world of the show, that makes sense, to be honest. I mean... Like, they're for, not In the married. world of the show... Yes, but, like, like, incest as a taboo in the world has, like, led to civil wars. Mm-hmm. You know, people have murdered to protect that secret. And if it's, like, everyone's completely blasé about it and it's all about we don't choose who we love, I feel like it then becomes harder to explain why Bran Stark got thrown out a window. But this is this this is different. This is inadvertent. This is with someone who he never met before in his life. And mm-hmm. they're Targaryens. Like, ah, three- it's, it's what's it yeah, called? Genetic attraction... That. Because there's, um, because incest was not that big of a deal in ancient Westeros with Targaryen kings and queens and siblings marrying each other. The real incest taboo started sort of uh, with the Lannisters because they're not Targaryens, right? Like, um, I, I, I would quibble with that. Um, okay. You know, there was there was this whole religious civil war called the Revolt of the Faithful. You know, where, like, you had the the High Septon, like, openly preaching from the pulpit that, you know, the Targaryens were abominations in the mm-hmm. eyes of the gods and, like, tens and tens of thousands of people were killed. You know, it, it has been, and, and, you know, the, what they, the way that that was resolved historically was that, like, literally they had something written within the doctrine of the, the Seven uh, called the Doctrine of exceptionalism where the targaryens are exceptional they are you know halfway between gods and men and look at you know their mm-hmm. eyes and their hair color and it's so pretty and different and like that was part of the kind of reigning cultural ideology of um of westeros but it's like part of the reason why we're supposed to view you know, in some ways, like Cersei and Jamie's relationship as like the ultimate expression of Lannister arrogance that they think that they they too are above the rules. Mm-hmm. 
I can definitely, I definitely see that. It is, yeah. And it's also really weird that, like, yeah, I'm of both minds on it because, like, I think eventually John is, like, with all the realization that he's a Targaryen is going to hit him that he has now already slept with his aunt. But, like, yeah, I, I think, I wonder how much of the Targaryen kind of culture, because even Daenerys and her older brother before he was dead, that was also really weird and incestuous, yeah. but not, like, consummated, thank goodness, but mm-hmm. really sort of weird. So I feel like Daenerys probably has no, would have no problem accepting Jon as a Targaryen if it weren't for the fact that his Targaryen ancestry actually gives him a greater claim to the throne than hers. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I think, I really think that it is more of a political problem, honestly. Like, yeah. I think that the other people will, like, if they need, if their political marriage needs to exist, then people will, like, live with, like, the incest and not even raise an eyebrow, especially because they have the Targaryen out for explaining it. Mm-hmm. And, like, and on a person-to-person level, again, this is someone who they did not grow up with, and they're the same age as each other. Like, it's just not, <laughs> this isn't, like, I hate to say, it, this isn't a normal case of someone sleeping with their aunt, but, like, it's really not a normal <laughs> case of someone sleeping with their aunt. Like, you know, they don't even look alike. Like, it's not, I don't know. Yeah. But speaking of people making decisions about sex, so Cersei, at first, when she when she's like, okay, screw it, I'm going to sleep with a shady pirate dude, I was like, why, why? And then I was like, oh, right, you're already pregnant, and you need to have some plausible person to be the father of your child who isn't your brother. So Yeah, okay. that, that's going to go over a lot better, you know. <sighs> yeah. People it's... love the idea of a bastard being the you know, heir to the throne that, you know, she already, this is the thing that like drove me a little bit crazy about last season is like, she, you know, by all of the political, um, you know, rules that like Westeros is operated under, she's got no claim to the throne. Now she's managed and she's also managed to like murder the Pope effectively. (laughs) There should be political, cultural mm-hmm. consequences. Like, you know, maybe they're not going to, like, rise up against her because they've, you know, she just murdered lots and lots and lots of people and she now has a big army. But, like, you'd think that people would be running away because she's cursed in the eyes of the gods or something. Yeah, that, like, when she blew up the Sept of the Baelors, so it's not just the High Sparrow, it's, like, so many other highborn people that I feel like... I feel like probably the people of King's Landing are like, oh, we can't fuck with Cersei because who knows what she'll do. She'll burn this whole city down. But I don't yeah, think that that would crazy. extend to her offspring at all. Like, I, I think that, like, the smartest political move that Cersei ever did was blow up the Sept of Baelor. And if you, like, watch the, the shows, because, like, my boyfriend wasn't into Game of Thrones recently and we watched the whole thing in preparation of season eight. Uh, which was a great mental exercise, but Cersei makes really dumb decisions, and <laughs> I oh, don't yeah, pretty much constantly, <laughs> pretty much constantly, and I don't foresee this like faking Yuan, like you know, to be the baby daddy is gonna work for, work out for her at all because like it just doesn't seem to make much political sense that like any of her children, two of whom were king and didn't make it for that long, like that any of her future children are gonna have a claim on the throne. I feel like, like, if Cersei were to die, like, it would just be a big old free-for-all like it was in season two. Like, now, you know, because Robert Baratheon didn't have that much of a claim to the throne either because he wasn't a Targaryen. Um, but this is me rambling. Sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's not, this is totally on point. So don't worry about it. I, I, I do want to make sure we take a minute to also just sort of talk about a big theme of the episode series that, and then I want to go to some of our listener questions. Um, so, you know, I was just constantly having moments watching this, this episode seeing like, oh, everybody in charge is a child. Like the, 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 the littlest umber is like a tiny, tiny child. You've got Liana Mormont being a child. You have Sansa, you know, being a very experienced and competent, but pretty much a child. Like everybody involved in leadership at this point is a kid, except for Cersei. Uh, and Cersei, of course, is acting like a petulant child, but that's a different <laughs> story. It really feels like this is this big generational cataclysmic moment where one generation of Westerosi leadership was wiped out and another one is coming into power. And maybe this younger generation is the one that will finally reckon with the climate apocalypse that's coming. Mm. Power shift network. I love that as a metaphor. (laughs) I love that as a metaphor. It would be, wouldn't it be amazing if that is the final thematic push that the show makes is like kick out all the old people rulers and put some youth in there so we could deal with climate change. That would be probably one of the better ways the show can end. Um, but will it happen in our world? Cause it seems to be happening in Westeros, but whether or not it can happen in the United States. That's up to you, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but that's also the other one of all the reunions. I loved all of them. And it's not even a reunion because I don't think Jorah has ever met Leanna. But I was like, man, I want those two characters to be in a scene because Leanna does not hold back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would be a very short bit about like, oh, yeah, you're the guy who sold people to slavers. Mm-hmm. And disgraced and the whole family. And then you ran away. Yeah, disgraced her family. But Leanna would not even be in power if Jorah hadn't been exiled and everything, That's right? True. So, like, there's there's a weird interdependence. And then it made me think, even thinking this idea thematically about youth leadership versus establishment or older leadership, Jorah has such, so much of his leadership is based on this, like, unrequited unfailing love for Daenerys right and specifically her um maybe more of the masonic version of her but definitely her because he's in love with her and Lyanna is really just ruled so much by her own values she's like we are the north I am Bear Island I am in charge of stewarding my people you know and where she's coming from and that that enables her to have so much fight and so much fire within her and to be so outspoken because Jorah is not necessarily an outspoken person. He's like a powerful ally to have, but he's sort of like pushed by his own self-interest as opposed to a collective self-interest. So it'd be really interesting to see those characters interact. But I think that those characters actually embody this thematic idea we have of who holds power and what kind of power they hold, like the collective power, the younger power, or like the older power, the self-interested power. Right on. I want to pivot to some listener questions. I'm going to start with the smaller ones and then get to the one that I worry could take up 30 hours. So the smaller one is, are the kids wargs in the TV show? It's a really big thing that's played mm. up in the book. And I just don't really have, yeah, like, are they, are they wargs in the TV show? <laughs> I guess we have a moment where we sort of see that John is, but what's going on uh, with that? I would say technically, but not thematically. Right. Um, I mean... You know, I'm thinking back to it, right? John is the only one who still has 
his wolf with him, although he is at this point something of an absent wolf father. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is one of those things where, like, something that was really important and meaningful in the books was an unfortunate victim of the reality that, like, animal handling is really complicated. And so, you know, they kind of took their opportunity to, um, you know, like, close off that part of the the story as quickly as they could. I I don't think, for example, that, like, when um, uh, Arya reunites with Nymeria in the books, that she's just going to be like, okay, you stay here, I'm going to leave. Like, I don't think that at all is what's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't have much perspective on this because I'm still in the first book, reading the books. Um, I'm still kind of struggling through that. I also, but I wonder though, like if it takes away, if all of the Stark kids are wargs and they can like sort of use that ability at hand. Like I'm thinking of the whole time Sansa has been in King's Landing and whatnot, and that would be super helpful for her. But would it take away from the realism of the political dynamics to yeah, introduce I mean- yet another supernatural thing? So they'll they'll kind of explain this a little bit more in the books. There's like it, it's it's not so much that like you can instantly tap into it. The whether you have a chance to form a connection to your your wolf uh, is significant. Okay. She never had the opportunity because yeah. yeah, got it. Because yeah. Next question: uh, Arya has a Valerian steel dagger that she clearly chose not to mention to John. Why is she playing that one close to the chest? And I'll add, what was the design that she wanted to have Gendry forge for her? Was that something out of Dragonglass? Yes. Which, by the way, I checked. Yes, it is technically possible to melt down and forge obsidian. Okay. It's extremely difficult. And, like, I honestly think going the Aztec route would be far more efficient. Where you just, you know, set teeth of obsidian into you know handles and things like that mm-hmm. and just have like amazing sharp toothy clubs and spears exactly yeah and arrowheads and stuff like that yeah well they showed them making what looked like arrowheads and i was like interesting choice but now that makes sense yeah so back to listener question what's that about <laughs> I wonder because um, because Arya, so she she doesn't tell him about the Valerian steel, but she also doesn't tell John about like how much of a killer she is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she didn't. After he said I didn't survive, didn't then say, "Cool, I worked in a death cult." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I would have said personally. Yeah, and she's choosing to keep all of that really close to her chest, which I think is a smart move because, like, well, A, it might be taboo in Westerosi culture anyway, but B, it's like there's so much more in her arsenal to use to, like, you know, take people off her list. But that's the thing that I wonder. Does Arya even still care about her list? We haven't heard about it in a while. Mm. Mm, That's very true. Well, there's not a lot of people left on the list. Except for the Hound. And Cersei. Yeah, and I feel like the Hound, she kind of, like, She's had her already. decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. But um, I think, like, one of the things I've just seen lots of fans talking about is, like, 
oh, everyone's being catty to everyone and like trying to play up the different tensions between predominantly the tensions between the Stark kids and um, and uh, Daenerys. And I, I think like these are relationships that are really there's like a political dynamic to all of them. And I understand the desire to sort of read it as like, oh, I, like why does this show have to make go and make the girls be catty at each other? And it's like, they're actually not, they're having a political dispute. Yeah. They're so trained to look at young, beautiful women being angry at each other as being catty, petty stuff that young, beautiful women having a political dispute with each other, like does not compute in the eyes of viewers, but like actually no, like Danny and Sansa, for example, have are in a political dispute. They're not just like, my hair looks better than yours. Yeah, or like, I'm jealous like, of people, your brother or whatever, yeah. Yeah, no. And like, people have been trying to say like, well, like acting like they would just be like, see each other and go like, girl power. It's like, that's not, that's not how politics work. And <laughs> it, 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 it speaks to the intelligence and complexity of both characters that that's not their only metric for understanding each other either. Yeah, I mean, I think it would help if they present the politics in a little bit more ideological and less personal mm. way tones yeah. and make some like be okay with complexity and ambiguity like one of the things that i found kind of interesting uh, have found kind of interesting for a while is like sansa being the like okay northern nationalism hoorah <laughs> and i'm like you like rule an army of veilmen mm-hmm. <laughs> that you brought you know, that were brought to the North and, like, you direct them. There, There is some ambiguity in this position, or at least should be. Um, why not, why not have that conversation out? Hmm. Or, you know, hmm, you know, if, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it seems like everyone sort of is very sort of one dim- one dimensional is is unfair but like there's not a lot of nuance in any one person's political uh position and yeah i i think that like i think that if they had decided to make a full 10 episode season there could be more time for that yeah i i think that the showrunners have both shot themselves in the foot and have an amazing opportunity because they keep like you know last season wasn't 10 episodes either and this one is only going to be six so they don't have enough time um but it also makes me question i've I've had this in season five and season six and season seven of like are the showrunners going to pull off what they're attempting to do and like ending this story in a really great way like so many tv shows have been great and then completely failed the landing um and it's not always you know a guarantee that you're gonna make it and i think one of the problems is is they are sort of losing as so many of these storylines converge they're losing the nuanced political dynamics that are happening all around them that made the show so great in its earlier seasons um but now they have to fight climate change so now which which is funny because in real life the threat of climate change has not sort of reduced our political nuance (laughs) Mm-hmm. in any way in fact it's always sort of like made it worse so maybe we're in like season three united states uh congress of season three of game of thrones where like all of our complexities are just making us ignore the problem wow that is <laughs> that is something to think about <laughs> um 
Their final question was, uh, why the Sansa haters? And I feel like that's a question which has been covered a lot already. Um, so, I mean, obviously the short version is like sexism, but like, I don't know if folks want to weigh in beyond the standard because sexism answer. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's sexism, it's shipping, it's the way that she particularly uh, performs gender. I mean, especially, yeah. like, versus Arya, who, like, yeah. you know, the the tomboy is a, a slightly, um, and it seems strange to say this, but, like, it's it's a slightly easier role to play for with some audiences. Yeah, if if you're if you're dealing with like a fantasy audience where like I mean, and this is this show is so mainstream that it's not even like the case anymore. But like if you have a nerd audience, then that that tomboy character is going to be the one that they're going to want to cheer for. Mm-hmm. The show is beyond a nerd audience now, but like yeah. it's I think it's, it's still sort of written into the and also just sort of anybody who is embracing masculine or culturally constructed ideals of what a masculine hobby or pastime is is going to be seen as more valid. Yeah. And one of the amazing things that the show does is deconstruct all of that. So anybody who's managed to read these books and not leave understanding the value of both Arya and Sansa is really not do, doing a good job of reading. Yeah, I, I think to because there's there's interesting things because like you know Sansa is more of like you know delving into the more feminine parts of power and like you know being able to navigate like the court and all that different stuff. But Daenerys also is like kind of a, a hyper feminized figure too, who's also mm-hmm. super powerful. I think that for some people, once a character gets labeled as a victim or you see a character get victimized, it's like some people who lack empathy, it's hard to redeem that character in front of their eyes again, um, which is sexism and it, which is like laziness and like a lack of intellectual curiosity that like I feel like maybe I, it's mostly sexism that people hate Sansa, but I think... Some of it was that, like, in earlier seasons, you saw her in a really powerless position, and she's no longer in that now, and people, some, you know, less intellectually curious people don't know how to reckon with that, um, and don't know how to see someone go from victim to survivor. That is Mm -hmm. such a good point, and a much more elegant and explanatory way than me just saying sexism because that's also sexism but you've spelled it out in a much better way than i have by just tossing it aside thank you both that was fabulous um (laughs) thank you so uh well thank you all for joining me i would love to at least do this again um at uh, maybe at the finale yes i think that we can arrange that Excellent, excellent. And to our listeners, if you have other questions, feel free to, you know, drop them in the Twitter. I'm on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Um, this podcast is brought to you by Graphic Policy Radio. Um, and uh, are, do, do any either of you guys have any Game of Thrones related media appearances coming up that you know of? Uh, so I have uh, at least one other podcast that I've I've been invited on to uh this is going to get really nerdy debate the uh which army is better the unsullied or the 300 spartans <laughs> so oh if you're if you really want to get into the like really you know you know would superman beat batman or vice versa of fantasy and history uh come join me for that that sounds fun 
Um, so I should hopefully be appearing in a Refinery29 article that's going to happen sometime this month, uh, like a human interest piece profiling all, all three or four of us Dothraki speakers who are currently active in the world uh, who aren't David J. Peterson, although he was also <laughs> interviewed for this project as well. So I'm super excited about that. And yeah, when that comes out, I'll throw it on all of my different social medias um, and tag Alana. And I'm, I'm excited for like the world to get to see a little bit more of what the Thraki community looks like in the real world and like who we are because we are just like super big nerds um, who happen to nerd out about the exact same thing. So Tihi, where can our listeners find your work online? Um, you can find my, my work online. You can um, buy my book, Dark Corners. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, online or in person, Dark Corners by Ruben Tihi Hazlett. Um, you can find me on Facebook mostly because that's the social media I check the most often. Uh, and my name is Tihi Rij, um, which is Dothraki for Ruben. Um, and you can find me on Facebook there. Awesome. And Steven, you have like the most active, badass Game of Thrones Tumblr. So I'm sure, sure everybody's so, following Race t- for the Iron Throne already. But uh, yes. And also uh, my WordPress site, which is where, um, which is also Race for the Iron Throne, uh, which is where you can find like my episode recaps and my essays. And, you know, pretty much it's where, and I do Tumblr Roundup. So it's like all of my content eventually ends up there. Um, so check that out too. It's a tremendous resource for fans, especially if you want to understand the books in a deeper level. So thank you all for joining me. And like we say, graphic policy, keep it geeky. Oh, Tiki, how do you say keep it geeky in Dothraki? Dothraki don't have a word for for geeky. Um, I'm going to say off the, um, let's just say, uh, Kovaras Awaka. Yeah, Kovaras Awaka Kishi. Keep our spirit. I love it. Nice. (laughs) Talk to y'all soon. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye.